0: Welcome to Always Andersonville, the podcast. I'm Charlie. This is our final episode in our series for our Say Hey campaign for January Health and Wellness Month. In each episode, we've discussed and talked to local experts on different aspects of health and wellness, corrected some common misconceptions, and offered some insight and resources for achieving your own state of wellness in the new year. This week, I am joined by experts from Family Matters Therapy founder and licensed clinical professional counselor, Wendy Cohen, and licensed clinical social worker, Dan Stribling. Family Matters Therapy was founded with the goal of helping families come together and build a stronger connection. They assist families of all kinds, but have a specialty in working with LGBTQ clients, including gay couples and teens. Wendy, Dan, thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you, thank you for having us. <laughs> Very glad
0: to have you on. You know, we talked a little bit beforehand about what this campaign this month has been. And I'm very excited to have you here because I think mental health is one that we don't spend as much time looking to reevaluate as we do in the new year, as we do physical health too. And it affects your physical health. So I always love to start just by getting a little background on you both, how you came into your field, your particular areas of expertise, where those passions came from. So Wendy, why don't you start?
1: Sure. So... I was working at a lot of more community health-based places and decided to get into private practice so I can work with individual clients. What I started to notice was a lot of parents were dropping off their children and just saying goodbye, fix my child for me, see you later. And it started to occur to me as I realized how much I loved working with the children children and teens, that I needed the parents in the room. I needed the parents in the room physically and also mentally. So... I really wanted to find my own path and my own passion, my own mission to get a therapy practice started where I could tell, the, let the parents know up front that it wasn't really just an expectation that they'd be involved in the treatment plan. And that could be you know regular conversations. That could be sometimes mom in the room, sometimes dad in the room, sometimes the whole family in the room. And I started just recognizing that there were so many adults. There are so many adults <laughs> that have stigmas against therapy and just always felt, Coming to me saying, "Well, I don't need this, but my child does, or so and so needs this, or my husband does, or my wife does," and not looking at themselves. And what I started noticing is, is when they would come in the room, they recognized just really what therapy basically is, which is just a safe space to talk, talk through different problems, talk through what their their needs are, and sometimes experiment a little bit with problem solving and sometimes just process stuff and it became where i was getting a lot more adult clients being okay with therapy which was exciting and it was also becoming where i was noticing that the kids were not feeling less like i'm here because i'm broken my parents are dropping me off and less about that than the parents saying we're a family we're going to work on this together and there's no one piece of this family that's a problem and it just it just turned out really lovely and i found out how much i love working with families we definitely work with individuals and couples too but families is definitely my passion awesome great thank yeah. you
0: dan how about you
2: yeah, so I, uh, I like to say that I started as a social worker and I'm a social worker first. I have a passion for that field, the idea that you're not just one person, but you're a collection of your community, your family, who you uh, choose as your family, the resources around you, and sometimes the resources not around you. And so originally I got into social work for that reason. I actually kind of came into the field in a way that I never expected, When I first graduated out of grad school, I thought that I would be, you know, jumping right into the field. But I found that at the time, this was 2015, that nobody really wanted to hire someone who had just LGBT experience on my resume. I had a really hard time finding agencies that found that as a, you know, benefit until I reached out to a housing program that said you had to be 25, which I was not. And I emailed the director and said... I know I don't have the qualifications, but I know I can do this. Please, like, let me just come in and and talk with you. And that's how I really got into uh, my first field, which was working in housing with young people. And so I uh, was a case manager originally with LGBTQ young people experiencing homelessness. And then after that worked in a men's housing program for young men experiencing homelessness. And I absolutely loved that work. The connections with the young people is really what Brought me into the field and continues to. I uh, then worked in theater-based programming. I worked at a program that helped young people who are connected with the justice system, so they might have been arrested or charged with a crime, use therapy and, and theater as a, a route to heal. So oh, writing their cool. own story. We would take those stories and put them on stage and allow young people to have the first time share what they experienced, but also see the people in their lives differently. So they would see their mom on stage. And maybe see that perspective in a way that they hadn't before. Actually watching and seeing, oh, maybe my mom was going through really difficult times. And maybe the thing she did was was wrong at the time. But I can now understand what was going on for her. Mm-hmm. And that really shifted things for those young people. So I really loved doing that work. And at one point, I kind of felt like I had like hit that point where I'd done a lot of work in those fields. And uh, as a millennial, I I kind of have that vibe where... Before you like stay at a job for 50 years and I just don't orient like that and so <laughs> you know I hit this certain period of like a couple years here, a couple years here I was like, okay, I did this work and I felt good about it, but I want to do something different And so I had reached out to Wendy and hadn't done any like I hadn't been in private practice I hadn't practiced specifically in like the therapeutic way but I think after talking with Wendy, I realized I was doing therapy but in a different language using the arts and your body in a different way and so I came to Family Matters, and from that point, I've really grown, and I work with couples, young people, up to seniors, a lot of people within the LGBTQ community, but also not. And the one thing I, I just love about Family Matters is that our approach is very, like, almost like the sky is the limit. There's not a way to do therapy with us We are really creative in how we connect with people and each individual that we work with has a different way to heal Mm -hmm. and we find it. And so I think that's something that we do a little bit different. And we almost have that kind of social work kind of mindset because we do involve the families, the community, who is important to them, whether it's a friend, a loved one. And I think that's kind of unique compared to the traditional talk therapy environment. Yeah.
0: I mean, community has been a very big aspect of all of these episodes we've done so far almost didn't even realize how much the community aspect of things from all aspects of mental health had come into play. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And I
1: should mention that Family Matters started out as a small practice in Wanaka, but I lived in Andersonville for 17 years and I live in the suburbs now, but I have this special, special community love for Andersonville and I'm like, it would be a dream to work out here. So I opened my practice out here and it's just been It is great. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, I feel like I'm just like spreading my wings and I'm like, I'm back. (laughs) Love that
0: community plug for Andersonville too. It's very much what we're about. So that's great. Well, you know, we have a lot to cover. Thank you so much, Dan. And uh, we have a lot to cover. I I mentioned, you know, earlier that mental health is a topic I'm particularly passionate about. And, you know, kind of commenting on something that Wendy, you said, I, I feel like it has finally become less stigmatized in the mainstream And people have become more comfortable discussing mental health, but also therapy as in practice itself. So that's kind of where I want to start, because a big part of these discussions we've been having on this series are about the misconceptions and myths that come with these sectors of health and wellness. I've enjoyed starting the episodes, debunking some of the main ones before we go into a deeper discussion on them. So I guess what are some of the more popular myths, misconceptions about mental health awareness or the work you do or mental health in general that you want to bust before we go into all this?
1: I think that not every session or not every person needs to like dive into their childhood trauma. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is not necessarily where therapy has to go. I think people worry about, I'm going to go, I'm going to cry. I'm going to, you're going to ask me questions that are really hard. Maybe, but we're also all about letting the client lead us Mm -hmm. and I'm never going to push a client into an area that they are not ready for. I think also like a lot of people come in and they think that they're going to get a diagnosis and we're going to tell them they need to take medication and maybe but not always and there's also there's a lot of holistic practices that we are really working hard to encourage that does not include medication so i don't know i think like what dan said earlier about just being able to be open and how different people heal using art we have an art therapist who's awesome so i have teenagers who don't like to look at me in the eye when they talk to me so we sit on the floor and we doodle or whatever you know like or sometimes I let them use their phone. I don't care but like let's sit in a situ- let's sit in a situation like where you feel safe and you feel like you can talk to me and you can trust me mm-hmm. So that's what comes to my mind. What about you Dan?
2: I think I would add on that therapy sometimes I think it's like people want to come to the process and they think that it's okay, I'm gonna be here for six weeks and everything's gonna be different. I heard Carrie Washington actually was she was uh, interviewed recently about her her own therapy process and she she said, along the lines, something like I'm not in therapy to end it. Like I'm not here just to like finish because like every week, every month, every year, our lives change and we're not the same people. I'm not the same person I was even last year. And so I think sometimes you might come to therapy and it might be six weeks and you're you're feeling okay and, and that's good. And it's really up to each person and family to determine that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes there's this idea that and I had this idea about therapy too where you like come into the office and someone's got a notepad and you lay down on the couch like the Sigmund Freud <laughs> yeah, sort, of, yeah. sort of image and they'll tell you everything that's wrong with you and and then everything will get fixed, you know, and it's about you having some kind of deficit. Whereas I think a lot of times the kind of quote-unquote diagnoses that people have are huge strengths. I think of some of the young people and kids we work with who have ADHD who are the most intelligent, smart, creative, powerful young people that you'll ever experience, but schools and other systems sometimes tell them that they're different, that there's something wrong, that they need to control these behaviors rather than see them as just innate qualities that actually will help them longer in life. I think the same thing with some of uh the clients I work with who may have autism spectrum disorder. And there are many ways where they see that as a deficit, but actually there's so many ways that it's helps them in life. Maybe it's through their job. And I can think of some people who like, because of that, they are so successful. Right. And so trying to really change the idea that almost like this is a going to the doctor's office and you're fixing things. We're empowering people to find themselves through the work. And ultimately, we also find ourselves as therapists. I think that's one of the great things is we're learning as we go, too, about ourselves and others. It's like a collaborative, beautiful process.
0: Yeah. I think one of the best phrases I was ever given, we talk about reframing perspectives, is it's not fixing something. It's not picking a lock. It's a process. Mm -hmm. You might, after six months or so, might feel better, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to stop going, too. I'd love to ask you actually then about uh, just because you talked about the idea of people thinking you go to therapy individually, as opposed to needing to bring the family in the misconceptions of that idea of that perspective of needing to do work alone versus doing work with others, if it's whether it's your family or your spouse, or, you know,
1: I mean, I think it's so individual. And I think, you know, and I know one of the things we want to talk about today is that everybody can define their family however they want to. And I think that's an important topic to talk about, but there there are benefits to including members of your family in your therapy because one, you're learning how to communicate yourself, but then you get an opportunity to communicate with family members about things maybe you normally wouldn't talk about or just having someone there that feels safe for you to feel, feel like you can open up and be vulnerable in front of a family member that you're not usually vulnerable with. So I think that there are, there are plenty of benefits to bringing in family members, but there's also, there's individuals I know that wanna keep it private and they're not ready to do that too. And I don't think that there's, the one is better than the other, but I think that there are definitely situations where, you know I might encourage it because I feel like that it, from what I see, it might be helpful. But there's definitely plenty of people that don't bring their family members in. And that's okay, too, because maybe they need that safe space and just need that space for themselves. And we see that in a lot of our couples work too. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of couples that come in sometimes like way too late. Like you should have done this five <laughs> years ago. But there's so many times where I'm like, do you work individually with someone? Do you work individually with someone? Because they come together and they have so much baggage or hardships or things in their lives that they they need to work on independently mm-hmm. from their partner. That is difficult to do in a couples therapy situation. So that's another piece of that, like bringing in family that I really encourage, like, yes, but also doing your individual work is really important.
0: And then actually jumping back to something you had said you commented on earlier a little bit, it's not uncommon for people to jump immediately to medication or thinking I need to start something or if I'm I'm depressed, it means I have to start some sort of medication. I'm sure there's a lot of myth and misconception about medication. So I'd love to hear from you on that, too.
2: You know, I think that medication can be a great asset for some people. A lot of the work that we do, sometimes I'll describe in that first session with clients that we are kind of like the co-pilot. So we're not flying the plane. We are helping the guy. There might be some turbulence. Okay, maybe we'll go this direction, right? But if you tell me, you know what, nope, I don't want to even pursue that right now, then I'm going to accept that. And it's the right choice for you because you ultimately are the expert of your experience. So I think sometimes medication can be positive, but I think a lot of times people have bad experience with medications, and it might not even be for uh, mental health reasons. They might have distrust of doctors, or they had a bad experience or traumatic experience. And so I think it's important to really remember that even though we have experience in this field, the person you're with has an experience that's far greater about their life. And we're just learning as we go. But ultimately, there's so many ways to heal without medications, and many people never will have to take one and they can make the progress that they want. So it's really important to make sure that we offer that
1: as an option to think about. But we're not driving that, if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: it's not the first step. I
1: think it especially comes up with school aged kids because sometimes the schools are recommending it and sometimes like, sure, it would help them to focus and get through the day. Probably. That's my opinion. Other people, other parents may say like, nope, nope, absolutely not. We're not. We're going to go every single route we can before we go to medication. And I think that, you know, they have to do what I think is right for them and understand that we're there to support them no matter what. If the school talks to us about medication... You know, I think it's just like putting that back on the parents. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, too, is I think that sometimes with parents, because we, had, we had mentioned parents a little bit here and there, I think that it can be difficult when you have a child and you have this dream of how your child is going to turn out. And they're they're not in this like perfectly wrapped with a shiny bow child that you expect. So that can come with a diagnosis, a need for medication, other medical conditions, cancer, You know and i definitely want to talk about like the lgbt part of that too like with you know we can talk about that next you know i think there is this grief that needs to be validated with parents when it comes like when their kid gets a new adhd diagnosis and their their teachers are pushing for meds it's a lot it's a lot for a parent to process they don't like it they don't want it they want it to go away So it's just giving them the time, the space, the grace to get through that grief and what they need to do to move forward as a parent. Yeah,
0: especially because they're not experts on these topics, too. So (laughs) in terms of talking about going back to how these conversations have sort of become less stigmatized recently, I'm curious why you think that is. In an email, Wendy, you had sent me, you commented on you're hearing words like isolation and loneliness a lot right now. Mm-hmm. Of course, the first place that sends me is COVID. And I'm sure you've seen a lot of uh, changes since in your practice since uh, since COVID. But I'm curious why you think where this shift on the stance of mental health and therapy has come from.
2: Part of it, I do think, is that COVID almost was, and it, you know, we say COVID is like still happening, right? It's this kind of bizarre, chaotic world we're living in right now. But I think what COVID was in many ways, you might have heard this sometimes in conflict work, we talk about rupture and repair and how that can sometimes create new opportunities. So sometimes through conflict, through intense experiences, that brings out new options. And I think during those years, a lot of people took a look and reflection on their life because they could, right? We were at home a lot more. What else were we going to do? You know, when you're working (laughs) through your day, yeah, (laughs) you don't have the time to think about all the thoughts you're having. And then all of a sudden you sit and just reflect and you're like, oh, wait, actually, I can see that there's something happening for me. And on top of that, at the same time, telehealth and Zoom and all of these things really made things so accessible. And so now I think there's so many more options for people to both meet with a therapist, but also find a therapist. There's so many more resources out there too. And so I think that on top of just our society going through such an intense and frankly, traumatic few years has allowed people to really make shifts that they might have not considered before. You know, I've known a lot of people who, you know, never thought that they would have like a stay at home job or never thought that they would work in a certain field And all of a sudden, you know, a lot of people were baking, you know, maybe I have an interest in baking now, you know, (laughs) so we learned a lot during those years. There's so much pain, but there was also so much beauty in the sense that we were able to find ways to support our own wellness, I think, during that time.
1: And I think, you know, going back to the hearing a lot more people talk about loneliness and thinking about that in relationship to COVID, I think our children and adults, we lost social skills. We forgot how to be social.
0: (laughs) I think I'm still learning how to be social.
1: Honestly, (laughs) it's seriously like it's like, oh, how do I make friends again? Like this feels awkward or embarrassing or, you know, like we've all like resorted back to like. You know, our teen years, like, I'm afraid to talk to people. Like, text me, please. Don't talk to me. Oh, my God. But we're hearing this from community members in Andersonville, actually. We're hearing this. And, Dan, you know this. We're hearing this from, like, older gay men that are struggling now to, like, what is my scene? You know, do I go to the bars? Do I, like, where are my friends? Where are my circles? Who is my family? Mm -hmm. I have friends that are dying it's, we're hearing this a lot over and over. I'm lonely. I'm sad. I'm isolating myself and I don't know what to do. And it's really hard to hear that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give Charlie a tissue. Yeah, yeah, yeah
0: no, 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 <laughs> obviously. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, we all had our own responses and reactions to it. And I, I we're going to talk about that aspect of being a part of the LGBTQ community. I know we have that slated to talk about in this conversation. I'm very interested in, but I was thinking just because you've talked about your work with kids a little bit. I was thinking of my nephew, you know, he's, he's three or four at this point, and he's a COVID kid. He was born in it. And he's the sort of kid where they'll go out for an activity. And after 15 minutes, he'll be like, okay, I'm good. We can go home now. And he's just so comfortable being at home. You know, he, Mm -hmm. he didn't, Go out and play with other kids. He didn't. uh, And it's not that he can't make friends. It's just he's developed a very early, early on a comfort for just being playing at home.
1: Wow, that's so, so interesting. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, uh, I, all of my my nieces and nephew are between three and seven at this point. So they've all had yeah. this interesting growth in there.
1: Well, and it's so important to realize that they're COVID babies because like how easy would it be to take a child like that and diagnose them as having autism? Mm-hmm. That's where my head goes. Oh, <laughs> that is going yeah. to happen to these kids because their social skills are different. They were shaped and developed at such an early age so differently. And it's going to be... T- Mark my words, it's good. there's going to be a lot of misdiagnoses <laughs> in that area, I think.
0: Well, I mean, I guess I'm not a parent. But as parents, we wouldn't we would relate to that. We wouldn't no. understand that. It's no. not the sort of thing we would go to. And a lot of to. parents are
1: looking for, and there are some, and we've talked about doing it, but a lot of parents are looking for social skills groups because they want their kids to like relearn social skills. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that's gonna be like an important offering over the next few years in mental health is to, and even adults really need it too, but are afraid to say it, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think that's where, like, I know that we wanna do some like social group stuff like with people and maybe that's what we do kind of focus on a little bit. Can we reteach some social skills to adults? It It sounds weird to say that out loud, but like maybe we need to work on that.
0: No, I love that, though, because I'm one of those people where I have a hard time finding activities I want to go to because I don't remember how to how to mm-hmm. talk to people at mm-hmm. them. And small talk scares me now. Yeah. So uh, that's exactly yeah. the sort of thing that I would love to go to friends with,
2: too, if yeah. you're for sitting on the ground doodling with it. Right. as well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think has been difficult for a lot of people is that because of the isolation that we had to do. Right. We had to protect each other in our community that led to a lot of people starting to find ways to cope by themselves and that in some ways is a good useful skill but our nervous system is meant for connection we're hardwired to connect with people and even like having a hug for example can de-escalate your nervous system right away and yet a lot of us have almost learned to not trust connection and i found even in my own nervous system when we were coming out of covid you know you're being around people and you're like wait Can I be that close to you? You know, like almost you start to build this like boundary. Five
1: feet. Yeah. (laughs) And so
2: it's taken some time for us to allow ourselves to almost be vulnerable around humans again. And so I think that's created a lot of anxiety and a lot of challenges that we hear about it almost every day of more young people who are so stressed going into school, are so stressed about making friends. They feel like, you know, they have to figure everything out right now. And so... A lot of us, including adults, the thing with kids is that they have permission to play and be curious. Adults, I think, sometimes feel like they have to figure it all out and have the answers. I have permission to work. Right. I've
0: I've been given permission
2: for that. Yeah. But like sometimes adults, if they're able to just be like, you know what? Let me be curious about why I have anxiety right now. And that in itself is such a different way of thinking about it. But we don't always allow ourselves permission. And so there's a lot of like retraining our nervous system happening. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of times I'll say to parents, like, well, I don't know either. Let's experiment. Let's try it. Mm -hmm. And then they will look at me like, why don't you know? Tell me, just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm like, nope, we're just going to try it. And then we're going to see how it goes. And there's so much anxiety between the kids and the parents, and the parents having anxiety, and the kids feeling that and having the anxiety is overwhelming. Every day I'm getting referrals. My kid won't sleep in his own bed anymore. He's got so much anxiety, he can't relax. And I'm like these poor little minds, Yeah. these poor little minds that are like seven, eight, nine and they can't relax. Like that's so sad.
0: I'm Just getting ahead of the game. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but can you just go play and relax? Go play, yeah. yeah.
0: You have no idea how, how much I would love to just go play. You yeah, know? exactly. Do this. <laughs> Well, actually, that's perfect because I wanted to talk. We're going to get into families, but I wanted to talk a little bit on the individual process because for people that haven't had exposure or experience in therapy before, there still can be that hesitation on pursuing it. Or I'm sure for a lot of people, it doesn't even occur to them that therapy might be something that can be helpful for them. They might not even realize that. You know, I talked with Sanad and Leah from PXM about how people don't realize their their sleep schedule is affecting their their eating, their appetite. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So what people might not realize their mental health is af- how it's affecting their physical health or even just their relationships with people. So I'm curious what you might recommend to people to sort of take a second and say, oh, wait, do I need some help? Would therapy be something that would be helpful to me?
1: Well, and I think sometimes it it may not even be, I mean, there's definitely the people who come in and say, I need help. I need help now. I'm in crisis. But I think in general, when I think about what you just said, I think about just self care, right? Like take, we go to the doctor, we go to the dentist, we uh, exercise, we eat well. What is something that I can do to take care of my mental health? I can give myself a safe person to talk to who may have some insight on helping me a little bit through life. You know, the nice thing about therapy, nice thing I, I see a therapist, of course, I, that I love about my therapy sessions is she's not talking about herself. She's just going to talk about me <laughs> and listen to me. And like, we all want that. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like, don't we all like, just want like a, a space, a platform to just like to talk about ourselves and our own like little little bitty or big problems, you know, and it's nice. Like, it's just a nice, I don't know. I don't have to worry about any judgment. I don't have to worry about, I really don't have to worry about anybody fixing it. She can talk to me about how maybe I can fix it if I need to, but not using those words. I can just feel like I'm in a judgment-free, safe space to talk about me. And it is so, I don't know what you would say, Dan, but it is, I, I love it. I feel so good afterwards. And I I just actually started doing therapy myself this last year. And I'm like, why have I not been doing this? This is so lovely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: yeah you know i had a a mentor when i was in grad school and it stuck with me she would tell us we all take you know we were in college so we all take what 15 hour, 18 hour credit hours a semester take one hour a week and take a class on yourself and you can kind of explore and find things out and learn about yourself and if we're going to be in school what's that so like learn about the things that we're doing and what we're exploring so i do think that a lot of times for people To be honest, I think that our mental health field sometimes makes it difficult for people to seek out help because just being honest, and we validate this a lot in session, it's kind of like weird to come into a session, you meet someone for the first time and they ask you, all right, what's everything about your life? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I wouldn't expect someone... If they ask me that for me to have to answer all those questions Mm -hmm. and so sometimes just validating that like I am a stranger you're just meeting me you can tell me what you want we could talk about whatever today let's take some time to get to know each other and so you can tell me when you feel ready or you don't have to tell me and that's something we talk about too is that ultimately if you don't want to talk to me about some aspect of your life I am not going to make you or you know I say this to a lot of the young people I tell them you know you're my boss so if, you know, I bring up something you want to talk about, say, Dan, I'm not talking about that. And I will respect that. And there's, especially for young people, there's not many places that they're allowed to do that. Mm. You know, in school, they're not really able to tell their teacher, nope, I'm not doing that, right? You'll get in trouble. At home, nope, I'm not doing that. Probably going to get in trouble. In therapy, if you say, no, I don't feel like talking about that today. It's like, great. What do you want to talk about? So you're fully in control of the process. And I think that is, can be beautiful for people when they get there. But it's also fair to say that the whole profession sometimes makes it difficult for people to kind of come in because they have this idea of what therapy is and it might not actually be that for them. Right. So we have to kind of break down those walls sometimes that we're not the person with the pad and notepad with you laying on the couch. We are very much with you in the process and you are ultimately our boss. Tell us where we need to go.
1: And really like some therapists may operate like that where they have a notepad and you know sit on the couch and <laughs> let me tell you exactly what skills you need today. And you know, there's different styles. What did styles. this dream
0: mean that I had last mm-hmm. night? Yeah, sort of exactly. Yeah. So
1: like, I think one thing I always say when I get a consultation call for someone looking for therapy, I let them know upfront, if I am not the therapist for you, if how I work, how I run our sessions, anything about me doesn't feel right, please go look look around mm-hmm. because this is such an important relationship in your life. And I never want you to feel like obligated or like you have to settle for me because I take Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever. <laughs> like, let's make sure that this relationship feels really good to you.
0: Yeah. I mean, I imagine even just the idea of building a relationship with a therapist is one of the hurdles people can have in getting into it. It's not, you're not going to work
2: everything out in your first session. It takes time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think also just to add to that quickly, sometimes people have seen five, six, seven, eight therapists before they find the right fit, right? And so they're probably going to come into that process not super expecting that this is going to work out, right? Mm -hmm. They've had some bad experiences before. And so we do try to be very authentic and honest about our way of doing it and that it might not be the right fit for everybody. you know I might be not the best fit for some of the people that Wendy works with and vice versa, but we we allow ourselves to build a team where there probably is somebody for someone, you know and that's important to us
0: yeah something, Wendy, I'd love to, uh, before we go deeper into families, you had commented earlier on the work with, uh, you were saying, older gay men and the issues that older gay men may have been having since COVID about getting back into a community, because you mentioned the idea of where where is my scene? You know, is it the bar? Is it, you know, is it not? Where do I go? And I mean, I would even say as a gay millennial, that's something I have trouble with too, is not knowing where I fit in in a lot of these circumstances. So it's interesting to hear that's something that maintains throughout the ages too. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about that work.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, we have some ideas like that we're trying to develop. Like we're we're starting a meetup and we're going to bring in some opportunities for social connections in, our, in my new space mm-hmm. in Andersonville. So I'm super excited about that. I think that... Honestly, like being in Andersonville is just so great for any individual who is, is queer and lonely because you can go anywhere in this area and feel so accepted Uh and fine. And you know that you're with your, all of us, like that know this community, like we're with our people. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I think that it's just something that we, we keep hearing. And I think that we, we just need to think about like how to, how to help. And I think that's something that Dan and I, he's like my dream team. Like we're always dreaming with ideas, but that's what we want to get feedback from the community somehow, I don't know how, but what are the gaps? What are people seeking as far as connection in this community? Because I see this community as being like really solid, but there's individual pieces of that community that don't feel that. And so like, how can we make sure people are getting their needs met and the connection-based needs? How can we help them with that?
0: Just bouncing off that, I want to kind of get your thoughts on actually just the word scene, because I think, uh, at least from my experience, when people talk about the queer scene or the gay scene, there's this very specific connotation that's (laughs) come with that for a number of years. And if anything, I think the word scene can become a little triggering for some people in terms of thinking, oh, well, the scene, I don't fit into said scene. I'm curious your thoughts on even just framing the language and the perspective that way.
2: I think there's a lot of intersectional challenges Uh, And what I mean by that is say you are a LGBT person and you are in recovery. Say you are, you've retired and you wanna date and you wanna have romantic relationships. Where do I go for that, right? And I think the other challenge is sometimes, and I think I can say this as part of the LGBTQ community, is that some of the spaces that we occupy are amazing for certain groups. I especially think of like when I was t- just turning 21 and going over and I went to sidetrack and I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> no, <you> know, <laughs> like a magical place, right? Yeah, now I go and I'm like,
0: oh, I'm yeah. crowded oh it's crowded and loud. So, and like a
1: hole. It's so cringe. <laughs> right.
2: But, so like there is there is a amazing, beautiful part of certain spaces and not everyone will fit there or they might not want to go there at all. And I find oftentimes that there's a certain level of shame when you don't feel like you fit in a place you're told you're supposed to, Mm -hmm. because oftentimes you're told you're not, you're not supposed to fit, you know, in this place, you're not supposed to fit in this place. And you're think, okay, well, this is the, you know, the LGBTQ community here in Chicago. I fit here. Oh, wait, I don't feel like I fit there either. And so it can be really difficult and isolating to feel like there's like nowhere for me. And I think that's a thought I hear a lot from people. And as you work and and move through that, I think what you find is that, again, going back to there's no rules, what do you love? Whatever that is, let's pursue it. And then let's find the people who also love that. And once you kind of put those together, you build this kind of safety for yourself that can follow you the rest of your life. But when you're not there, it can feel like there's nothing for you.
0: Yeah. Or you're trying to force yourself, you know, you're a square peg trying to force yourself into a round hole. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Wendy, something you'd mentioned to me in our earlier conversations that stuck with me was the act of normalizing what is defined as a family and especially with LGBTQ clients, and we'll step a little more now into the LGBTQ work that you've done. That was interesting to me because it's not something I've really ever considered of what is a, and we have people that, you know, you have friends that you say, these are like my family. What is the common idea of a family? Because that's I mean, a misconception in its own, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think like the common idea for a family is who lives with you, right? Like generally who lives with you, who, is, who are your blood relatives, who is your mom and dad, who are your siblings? That's the general idea of a family. I think that, you know, I grew up not really have, I didn't have parents and I just had, like my grandma raised me and, you know, different people in my life on and on, but, or off and on. But I now, I still don't know if I have a good understanding or concept of family because of how my childhood was. But I try to, myself and with my clients, help them understand that they can choose who their family is because the your family should be people that love and accept you mm-hmm. no matter what unconditional love right and i think that it gets confusing it gets cloudy with how like blended families i could go i could talk about blended families but i have one and i have clients who are pa- families that are blended and it's it's really hard but i think that we can all have our our understandings our our misconceptions of what family is supposed to be or we can have an understanding of each person gets to choose who they want to be in their family. I guess that's like a long-winded way of answering your question. No, but, but I mean, <laughs> clearly,
0: the, the, what it almost comes down to is there is no clear definition of family. <laughs> it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, you can't just like, like define a, it in a sentence.
1: But I think a lot of, and not just the LGBTQ community, but you know others too can have like a lot of abandonment and trust issues from an early age like maybe when they were coming out or before that even like being misunderstood or you know there's there's unique issues that go along in that community right so you can see like more and more like you know if i have a family and i used to work at the cradle too i did adoptions and i worked a lot of a lot of same-sex adoptions so you know if you're saying you know same sex same gender family and you have children like that's your family
2: i think that with the lgbtq community and i think in my own experience we have to learn from our community we didn't get the opportunity to learn sometimes from our parents or other family members who we traditionally say is our family. I think of like, for example, sex ed, we had to figure that out on our own. And sometimes that means a lot of situations that didn't go great or like we have to, we learn the hard way, right? But the way that we stay safe, is we build these connections within our community to learn from each other. I think a good example of this was, I think, what was it, time kind of passes, but when monkeypox kind of started coming out again or when it kind of happened, the only way I would have been able to figure out where to get a shot was from my community. There Mm -hmm. were people posting on Instagram, hey, this place is go here, this place go here. And so I think that one of the beautiful things that we can do is help people see that even if the people you were raised by don't support you. You can build something beautiful and there's no rules. And that I think is what is so great about being a queer person sometimes is that we don't have rules, right? We can kind of, not that anyone necessarily does, but we can kind of create what feels right to us. And that is different for every single person.
0: Yeah. In terms of, we talked about this idea of what family is and, you know, the difficulties that it can happen if you have if you're an LGBTQ family, if you're a blended family, what are some of the common difficulties or hurdles that you hear most from your patients from those those types of families, those types of situations?
1: Yeah, so I mean the first thing that comes to my mind is thinking about and you've done this a little bit more than I have, Dan, the gay teens that are coming and saying, I am afraid to say anything to my mom, or I want to do some transitioning and I'm terrified to say anything to my parents. They won't love me. They won't accept me. How do I do this? But how do I get the resources that I need? How do I advocate for myself? So it's almost like sometimes like we become like an extension of their family for them to help them bridge the gap between them and their family and this is what i i love to do this is like a passion of, of mine that i'd like to continue doing is to create these norm families that we talked about before and make them like where they can be loving and accepting no matter who your child is so you know i think about like older people in the lgbt community who maybe had like the abandonment and the hardships when they were young because of who they are but the kids like there's still time Right. Like we can still like try to work with the parents, help them understand, help them accept, help them also spread the love with other family members, with neighbors in their community and be their person and be their advocate, their rock. And I think that we see and I know, Dan, you've had this happen a few times where we've seen like parents that come in and I'll use the word grief again, because there's parents who have this dream of who their child is. And it's not, their dream is not that their child's going to be gay. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest. They're not, that's not their dream probably because they know that, you know, for whatever, whatever reason, like maybe like their own upbringing, their own beliefs, their beliefs of what's going to, what hardships they're going to face as a result. And so there is like that time too, where we have to step back and let the parents grieve, and then validate what they're going through, and then help them come back around and circle back around and find a way to help them accept. And so it's that education, understanding, how can I help? How can I be an advocate? Let me listen, do some authentic communication work with them so they're listening. And then again, that they're spreading the word amongst other family members to make sure that their child is in a really safe space Mm -hmm. in their family.
2: Yeah, I think the one thing I'll add to that is, and I can think of my own personal experience, sometimes we know our identity oftentimes at a very young age i would say at least for myself as as a queer person and over time you hear these things from the people in your life right i can think of one of my parents was very into the lineage of our name and got really into it and it was the whole like we're going to go to the family reunion and then there's a lot of discussion about you know as me, as somebody in the family, like we're to continue this kind of legacy. And so, even though that wasn't a bad intention or anything, it probably caused me not to come out for a long time because it was this idea of like, oh, I'm going to really be a failure for these people. <laughs> you know, like they have these ideas of what my life will be like and it will not be anything like that. Right. And so, I think that sometimes, especially working with young people, I find that they are at this really high activation level, especially some of the queer young people we work with, because they feel very confident about their identity. They've worked on it, they have friends that they've met, but then when they come out to their parents and their parents take a little time to figure it out and they're kind of dealing with their own grief, they have this really strong reaction to that, sometimes even a very angry reaction because they feel like their parents are really invalidating, and they kind of are, but they're also going through their own grief process. And so what we often do is help the young people, kind of similar with that kind of putting in the other shoe, like, what do you think your mom is going through right now? Let's just take a second and just explore that. Because sometimes they might find that parents really love them and they're just trying to figure this out. They don't want to do the wrong thing. And so that might mean that they avoid these conversations, but it might not be because they are not supportive. It's almost the opposite. They are supportive, but they don't know the language. Yeah, yeah. And so really doing that work to help them understand that. And then we can bring in the family and have these conversations together. And that can be really beautiful when we get there.
0: Well, language seems like it's probably a huge, huge part of it too, because I'm even thinking if you, you know, if you're the child, if you are a a kid that has queer parents, you know, the difference between going into your classroom and how do I explain or how do I comment on, I mean, ideally, you know, it wouldn't even be a question. They would just say, yeah, my, my two dads or moms or uh, whatever it may be. But how do you, when that entire perspective shifts, when you find out your, when your kid has either come out or they're getting older and being put in a position where there's maybe more stigma from other people. uh, How do you talk about that? So I I can imagine the language aspect of it is a huge thing in terms of different words you use, use this as opposed to this, you know, I mean, they seem small, but it's probably big in terms of the parents and the kids figuring out how to deal with it.
2: Yeah. And I think sometimes with identity exploration, parents get very confused. You know, I've worked with some young people over the years that this week we have this name, and next week it might be a different name, and next week it might be a different name. And they see that as like, wait, what's going on? But that's just them kind of exploring and trying things out. And so, helping the parents also understand that it's not that they're like going back and forth on things, they're just testing out what feels right to them. And like allowing them to kind of go through that process can be really important. And oftentimes, that's where some of the challenges come because parents like basically try to be like, you need to decide on what. You do and that can be very difficult for a young person to manage yeah yeah
1: that's a good tip for parents to think about because i think that i i can imagine that parents are thinking well they don't know what they want they don't know who they are and just kind of throwing their hands up but i love what you said about giving them a chance to just experiment a little bit and they're just figuring it out they're just, you know, exploring and they're thankfully able to explore it out loud. Mm-hmm. And they have the confidence and they feel safe enough to do that with you, mom, dad whatever <laughs> like this is great so shedding some light back to the parents like I love that they can talk to you about this mm-hmm. this is great mm-hmm. and then finding ways for them to look and validate their kids and this must be hard for them but I love that they're taking time to explore and make sure what what they're deciding feels good to them what they're knowing feels good to them yeah it's just I mean it's a lot of coaching
0: yeah. So bouncing off of that, I guess, getting uh, opening up for another piece for insights or advice. If you have if there's parents or kids that are sort of at the beginnings of experiencing these new changes in their lives, what's a good Do you have a good piece of advice of where people can start if they're not sure where to start? Like, I mean, like we said, sometimes you do have a knee-jerk reaction and you think we go straight to this solution or straight to trying this, but they might not know where to go. They might not think I'll reach out to a therapist from the get-go.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think obviously I think that reaching out to a therapist is great because there's a lot, a lot to process, but also like giving yourself grace and saying like, okay, this is a lot for me. I need to take my time with this. There's no rush. And there might be time where I need to step back. I need to talk to a therapist or I need to talk to a friend or I need to listen to a podcast or read a book. I need to educate myself and not and just, you know, so I guess my biggest advice would be just to like take a breath. It's okay. You've got this and don't feel like that you have to rush this. And I know everybody wants to do the right thing. And it's also fine if you screw it up and you can go back and you can fix it. So just being honest with yourself that this is new for me as a parent, mm-hmm. I don't exactly know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to try. And along the way, I'm going to make sure that my child lo- knows that I love them. And that's the most important piece.
2: I think the one thing I'll just add on top of that, and it's almost like advice that I would sometimes give couples too, is that I notice a lot of times with couples, they, they have a struggle because one person just needs to be heard out and one person wants to fix it. And similar in this kind of dynamic, oftentimes parents want to figure out how to help as fast as possible so that their child feels affirmed. And I think usually they miss the part of just validating and saying, you know what, this had to have been really difficult to tell me. And just validating the the hurt and the pain and the fear that that young person has really can create safety to then go to the solutions. So almost allow it, similar to what Wendy said, just allow the process to unfold a little bit. There is not a timeline. It might take five years for them to really find what feels right to them. And that's okay. And letting things kind of not be like it needs to be in three weeks. It might be a lot longer than that, and it's okay.
0: That's why, like I said, I don't like New Year's resolutions. I have to to figure out my identity, but my goal is three weeks from now. Oh no, (laughs) I'm behind. So... You know, the conversation around sexuality and identity has evolved so much in the past decade or so, even just compared to when I was in uh, grade school, and it seems like kids have become more comfortable coming out earlier. And because and there is potentially more of an opportunity and exposure for supportive queer communities, like you commented on before, but that there's always these intergenerational differences. Something, uh, Wendy, again, you had commented to me on, and Dan, you had as well in the email, is uh, you know that a queer person of a certain age has potentially experienced an entirely different type of pressure. You mentioned social media, identity pressures, you know, internet content, you know, cyberbullying, advocating for yourself. I mean, cyberbullying was a brand new word when I was in middle school and there were no rules and there was nothing anyone that happened in school, there was nothing anyone could do about it. So, I mean, I'm can you talk to me a little bit about these intergenerational changes and how that's a practice that you approach? Because I imagine it's yeah. difficult to go between a teen to someone who's older.
1: Well, I mean, I can talk about it personally because I have um, three daughters who are all in the queer community. And I, I watched them go through high school and feel... And there was times where I felt I, I noticed and felt like, gosh, they it seems like they feel like so much pressure to like identify who they are mm-hmm. all the time. And, you know, and there's the, the great parts of it, right? Where everybody's like talking about their pronouns. So then it becomes where, you know, the, the, the hard side is and it becomes then like, well, who am I? Who am I? I got to say it. I got to say it. I got to, maybe I have to change my name or maybe I have to say that I'm bi or maybe I have to say that I'm gay or maybe I can't say any of it. But there's pressures that I watch them go through to, you know, make announcements, whether it was on social media or to us, and then kind of go back on it and say, no. Maybe, yeah, like kind of like we talked about with the names, whereas, you know, a parent, you know, it was like a little frustrating because I felt like the pressure that I, and I don't know if it was perceived or not. I don't know if I'm right, Dan, about this, Mm -hmm. but I just felt like there was just so much pressure Mm -hmm. in high school to say, like, what is your sexual orientation? What is your pronouns? What is your plan? Who do you want to date? Right. And I just felt like that must have been really hard for them to feel that, you know, I don't know.
0: Well, and I mean, on the flip side, when I was in grade school, it wasn't, what are your pronouns? No one was asking about pronouns. Yeah, right, right, and it was right, more right. like the danger on my side was either that I was too gay and then I got into a gay community and all of a sudden I wasn't gay enough, you know, yeah, it's, right. it's like a vicious circle.
2: Yeah. And I think just to be very transparent over this last couple years, social media has become a place where there's a lot of anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ Comments and material and all of that, and young people see it. And I think that the other challenge that they're experiencing is they're creating these these new identities for themselves and new connections with people, but they're walking into a world that is very scary right now. And so it's hard to kind of for them to sometimes see the future and that it will be possible when they're seeing things going on uh, around the country and. They don't feel like they have any ability to do anything about it. And so I do think that there's a lot of information and things that young people now see on a daily basis that was never the case. I mean, when I was in... High school, I think I had a MySpace. I remember, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like you would move your like first friend to second friend, and it would be oh a yeah, dramatic situation. Oh, yes, forgot yes. about that. But oh. it wasn't like you know we had AIM. We'd be like message, oh I'm away, all that kind of stuff. But like I wasn't seeing all this information. To be honest, I learned so much in college about even what it meant to be a gay person. Mm-hmm. That's when I came out. But now young people are seeing this at young ages. So I do think that a lot of it is also allowing them both to see what's on social media and finding themselves through it, but also almost separating themselves and seeing, do I want this because I feel like I need to put on this kind of mask, so to speak, or is that authentically me? And that's why I think there's a lot of like trying out things because we get so many messages and we're not really sure
0: what does it even mean to be
1: gay confusing yeah
0: yeah What i mean even just the difference between you know the idea of scrolling Mm -hmm. scrolling was not a thing (laughs) until (laughs) we had social media really and so what we were seeing on the internet in the 2000s early 2000s we're hit with so many more images and so many more pieces of content constantly throughout Mm -hmm throughout the day. And I guess, you know, there was a lot of conversation in the 2000s about how do parents talk to their kids about being on the internet? Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm curious for how much kids are exposed to now, how would you recommend a parent, a parent can't possibly monitor everything a kid is seeing anymore? You can't put child locks on on things the way that you could before.
1: Yeah, they uh, really can't. And I mean, I think like my my biggest piece of advice is just work on your connection with your kid, get them in a space where they feel like they can really trust to talk to you about anything. That's what you can do It's that peripheral work, right? Like I'm gonna become like a, a really trusted person to you and I in hopes that you're gonna feel comfortable talking to me about things that come up that you have questions about or about things that come up and you maybe shouldn't have seen that at such an early age. Let's talk about that because it's just impossible yeah. to be honest, like it's impossible to control what your kids are seeing these days And so let's just be the person that they can come to when they feel like they need to talk about it.
2: Yeah, I think if I had to give advice on two like super skills that parents can try to provide their kids, I would say that it'd be what, like build resiliency, because I think resiliency is power, right? When young people can feel resilient about what they see and they can build the capacity to manage what they hear at school and things like that. I think that goes a long, long way. And I think the other piece is just allowing young people to have safety and and be able to come to them when it's right. And a third thing I think is boundaries. Boundaries are love very often. So if you can teach young people what boundaries are in a safe way, it's okay to set limits. You should set limits with your your children, but you can do it in a way that feels like The young person also has agency and you can have open conversations around why those boundaries are important. Oftentimes, I think parents will just say, you can't do that. There's no explanation. Don't bring it up. And if you bring it up, you're challenging my parenting, right? But if you have an open conversation saying, this is why I think we should have a limit here. That goes a huge way because a young person then can understand the why behind it instead of this more authoritative kind of don't do it or else. And Mm -hmm. so- Those things together, I think, can really help young people through a lot of the challenging things they see.
0: Do you personally have any suggestions that you give younger patients you work with on, you know, because obviously, again, it's part of parents sort of giving boundaries to kids. But based on the relationship you've built with your patients, do you have advice that you give to your younger saying, like, why don't you try doing it this way? Or or I'm curious about that.
2: Yeah, I think Wendy and I, we talk a lot sometimes, especially with kids, about the feedback sandwich. You know, we do it for parents, but sometimes even for kids, being able to teach them, you know, start with something validating, say something positive about the person you're talking to, then provide your feedback, and then say something positive after that. And so you can you don't have to go about these boundaries in a way that's very, like, harsh. You can talk to your parents and say, when you misgender me. Even though I know you're trying, this is what it feels like. And this is why it's important to me that you use the right name, for example. And so it doesn't have to feel like you're being, like, in an argument. You can actually say it in a way that can be really safe and have a really beautiful conversation, but a lot of times we don't get there because we are in defensive kind of space. And so helping young people find a way to communicate that in a way, I'd say a lot with couples especially, which is a little bit different, but you gotta say it in a way that lands, right? You know, If it's not gonna land for your parent, then you're not gonna get your point across. So how does it land for you and for them?
1: Well, and I love, I love like we talked about earlier, part of our philosophy is making sure we include the family at times at, when it's appropriate. But I love when I have a kiddo in my office and something comes up and they really need to, really need to talk about it with their parents and I'm like, you wanna do it now? <laughs> and when they say, yeah, I do, and then we make a plan and say like, how are you gonna say it? how do you think they're going to respond how are you feeling right now are you ready and then i'll just go out in the waiting room like can you come in for like 10 minutes let's have a chat you know have a chat and i love that because that gives them a place where like they're ready they've said they're ready they kind of know what to expect and i'm sitting right across from them and mm-hmm. looking at them and i'm their cheerleader over in the corner saying like good job i'm so glad that you told them that that was that's been really hard for you let's come up with a solution. I'm so glad that you did that. I'm so proud of you.
0: Awesome. I love that. Have you found that parents of uh, these days, LGBTQ kids have become more open, ready and willing to work out internal conflicts that they're having, as opposed to just, like you said, dropping their kids off and saying, fix this, which is a horrible thing to say. But um, have you found that people have been more open to to doing the work themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that the... Clients that we see in the parents are very open to talking about uh, not just that, but just anything that they're, con- how they're contributing, mm-hmm. right? Like I have mentioned anxiety before, like how they're contributing to the the overall feel of the house, right? So I think parents, when they, at least in my practice, what I see is that parents are bringing their, ther- their kids to therapy and we talk to them about the expectations of them getting involved and then they're like kind of all in and they're like, let's do this. And they're pretty good about having those conversations after, maybe after something comes up, if we say, how are you dealing with this? How are you feeling about it? I noticed that you got quiet when we talked about this. And this is sometimes separate calls, right? So like, we'll see maybe a family. And then I might have like a separate session with mom later in the week. It you know kind of ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. but there's abs. I think absolutely, and I don't know if you agree, Dan, but I think absolutely from what I see that as parents are watching this type of therapy to be done with their families, they are almost given permission to say like what they need to say and work on those internal internal conflicts, and seeing that so much with my families.
2: Yeah, and I think oftentimes families want to make sure that they're not causing more harm like honestly I think a lot of times I hear parents say is there something I should do different like what is it that I'm missing and so a lot of the work too is sometimes actually telling them no you're not missing anything this is kind of part of the process or yeah actually when you kind of go about it this way you're kind of pushing them away a little bit and so like there's times to figure out when you're pushing when you're pulling all that kind of stuff and how do we how do we kind of move forward in a way that feels right that's also not you know, invalidating their own experience as a parent, because there's a lot of stress and expectations being a parent. And I think a lot of parents feel like they're being judged by everywhere. And so especially like I think of some of our kids who have ADHD and like, they might be in public and they might get kind of impulsive at times and they feel like they have to control it. And so there's a lot of pressure on parents. And I mean, I mean, I can think of times when you just see parents just fully just like kind of like, have that emotional moment and release because it's so much they're holding on to.
1: Yeah, and I just to add one more thing. I think that so many parents like start even you know, I'm a lot older than you guys, boomer mm-hmm. probably, but like I think that we all had this intention of being parents and being better than our parents and mm-hmm. being better than how we were raised. Obviously, right? Like we're mm-hmm. all like, I got this. I'm going to do so much better. I'm going <laughs> to listen. I've got you know. I'm going to be like super mom. And that's where we get like the helicopter parents, right? Mm-hmm. That are like, I'm going to keep my kid in a bubble. They're going to be safe <laughs> and they're never going to get hurt and they're never going to have to cry. <laughs> and I think that when the parents come in and have this release, like you're talking about, Dan, it's like saying it's okay to say it's okay not to be perfect and let's try it this way. Let's try again. Let's get some help. Let's look up this just look up some more resources uh, because I think that parents put so much pressure on themselves.
0: Is there a risk this might sound redundant a risk associated with being well, like say if their child comes out being too involved or too supportive <laughs> or trying too hard to showcase show that they're
1: I think the kids will let them know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, but the kids will let them know. Okay. <laughs> That's how that usually goes down. <laughs>
0: it's easier to tell your parent you are helping too much yeah, as opposed like, to back. I need more help.
1: <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> percent.
0: Well, hey, you know, thank you very much for talking to me. This has been great. Uh, last thing I wanted to ask was I know you'd mentioned to me that Family Matters also offers a lot of resources for parents and and for teens, kids to look into for help they might need with various things. So I was wondering if you wanted to comment on some of the resources that you do offer to people to say. I
1: think I feel like there are a lot of like I was saying earlier, a lot of people coming to us for looking for social groups. Um, For their kids, I know that, you know, I I think we've recommended like sociability. That's the only thing that comes to my mind. Sociability. Social ability. Social ability. I know that they do groups. uh, They do social, like very like structured social groups, which I think is really important. Yeah,
2: you know, in terms of LGBTQ young people, there's there are a lot of different resources out there. One I can think of out in the suburbs, if there's anybody listening out in the suburbs or in the city and are looking for some resources, there are a lot of groups that Youth Outlook. It's an organization that does drop-in groups for young people. And they have a particular, I know there's a trans specific drop-in out in Naperville for anybody's out there. I know that there is, for example, for young people who might be experiencing homelessness in the city. There are several different organizations that could be a support. There's actually an app. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but there's an app where they can go to that has all the information of LGBTQ resources, including you can book a bed if you need a place to stay. And I would even say like Howard Brown is a resource if Mm -hmm. someone is looking for maybe looking at gender confirmation, maybe looking at potentially taking medication assistance, any of those kind of things. They have parent support groups there as well. Um, and to be honest, I would kind of plug us to reach yeah. out to us. I, <laughs> I was going right? to
0: say, um, <laughs> uh, obviously, you have a lot of resources. Our listeners could reach out to you if they to get this yes. journey started or if they have a question, where can they find you? Website, social sure. media?
1: So they can find. So uh, we're Family Matters Therapy and our website is FM. Therapy.com. And, or you could email Dan or I. We're both on the website, Wendy at FMtherapy.com or Daniel at FMtherapy.com. Just another little plug we are just in the midst of building a wellness center in Andersonville, and we are offering yoga, meditation, a lot of different types of healing workshops, mindfulness. And we're also going to be doing some meetup groups and we're looking at like the social needs in Andersonville as well. Great. Well, and theater probably too. So I'm mm-hmm. doing some improv and theater work that revolves around some therapeutic needs.
0: And we'll share more of that from the chamber side too Perfect. when okay. when you start launching yeah, those projects yeah, yeah, and yeah. everything. Awesome. Well, hey, Wendy, Dan, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank Thanks, you for having Charlie. Us. This
1: was so great. Yeah.